0: Be turning with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew, Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. Preaching a message this morning, April Fools. Jesus is risen. Charles Lamb once said, Here cometh April again. And as far as I can see, the world hath more fools in it than ever. And God's people said, Amen. (laughs) Amen. When we have to attach warning labels to chainsaws and hair dryers and hot beverages, the world has more than its fair share of fools. Amen. When we kill the babies and save the trees, the world has more than its fair share of fools. When we change the color of laundry pods to make them less appetizing, (laughs) the world has more than its fair share of fools. And some would add, and when millions in America and billions around the world in the age of scientific enlightenment believe God exists, the Bible is true, the cross is the only way, and Jesus is risen, the world has more than its fair share of fools. Richard Dawkins, the famed atheist, has said, presumably what happened to Jesus was what happens to all of us when we die, we decompose. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. So is Mr. Dawkins correct? When it comes to the resurrection, is it simply April Fool's? And so this morning we come to our final message in our Easter series, April Fools. Thus far we've examined that God exists, the Bible is true, and the cross is the only way. way. And along the way we've asked who's the fool and who's not? Who's believing the wild and absurd and doubting and dismissing the credible and important? So we come this morning to Jesus is risen. Are we as Mr. Dawkins would propose fools to believe Jesus is risen? Is it April Fools or fool not to believe I propose and will show by looking at the foundation, the fallacy, and the fact that it's fool not to believe. Amen? Amen. And so stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 28. We'll read verses 1 through 17. come see the place where he lay then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold he is going for you to Galilee there, there you will see him see I have told you so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples and behold Jesus met them and said greetings and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him Then Jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me and when they saw Him, they worshiped Him, but some doubted. The Word of God to the people of God, preaching the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this day. Father, we know that You have appointed it from the very foundation of the earth for us to come and to worship You. And so we thank You for that. Father, we say Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen indeed. We stake all of our eternity upon that truth. And we know He is coming again. And Father, if You would see it in Your sight, Father, for him to bust the sky and stop this sermon right in the middle of it, we would all be blessed and happy. Amen. Yes. Amen. But Father, we pray that if it's not in your time for that to happen, that in the meantime, Father, this morning, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to be molded to the truth of your word, that then we would have hands and feet to go out and do something about it. Father, we ask that you would grant all this now in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. For there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Amen. So we're going to come back to this passage along the way this morning. But for the moment I want us to focus on three little words in verse 17. Did you catch them? But some doubted. That's a Greek word that we get deuce or two from means to duplicate, to waver an opinion, to be double-minded. It's not a settled unbelief, but a, an uncertainty. The only other time it's used is in Matthew 14, 31, when Peter's walking on the water, and then he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and what happens? He starts to sink. Jesus reaches out and he says, Why did you doubt? Why were you in double-mind? You were doing so good, you were going along, and now you're in double-mind can't you think that an extraordinary event such as Jesus' resurrection had them in two minds, had them double-minded? Dunn says that in Matthew's mention of doubt here that this is a genuine historic echo. In other words, you don't make this stuff up. If you're an eyewitness, what do you do? You just simply tell what happened. You don't have to defend it. You simply tell what you saw. And an application for this whole message, it's that. Some worship and some doubt it. Dr. McGee says that's how it's been for over 1,900 years, and my friend, you are in one category or the other. The Bible says that we' are to have mercy on those who doubt. And so the goal is that this morning you would leave here one-minded. that if you do not know Christ, that you would be convinced of the reality of the resurrection, and it is the only hope for mankind, and that you would give your heart to Jesus this morning. If you're saved, that you would stand firm in the reality of the resurrection and guard your heart no matter what the world wants to tell you today in Jesus and that He is risen. Amen? And so we'll look at three things. First, Jesus is risen, the foundation. Christianity stands or falls on a single event the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the linchpin of our faith. Do you know what a linchpin is? four little lynch pins kept how many ever pound our fifth wheel on the road behind me and not barreling into my family who was behind me yesterday whenever we were coming back from a getaway a lynch pin is a little thing that holds a trailer or holds something snug or secure the resurrection is the lynch pin it's what holds our faith absolutely secure because If the Bible is true, but Jesus is not risen, all He did was die a heroic death, and what does it matter? You and I have no hope. Your very hope this morning, the whole reason you came is what? Because of the hope. What does springtime give us? Hope of new life. That's what you're here for because of the hope of new life that is in Christ. And the only way that happens is what? If He is risen. If He is resurrected. JP Moreland said the resurrection is the foundation upon which the Christian faith is built. D.L. Moody said it's the keystone of the arch on which our faith is supported. Interestingly, when my studying, I'd come across an article, everystudent.com, and it was an article on the five religions of the, <coughs> main, the five main religions of the world. And in describing Christianity, it was amazing to me, you know what there was no mention of? The resurrection. How can you even discuss Christianity without there being any discussion of the resurrection? Because Christianity minus the resurrection is not Christianity. Christianity minus the resurrection is zilch. It's nada. It's nothing. Evan had sent uh, Jimmy and myself a New York Times article this morning. Am I a Christian? And the author says, can you be one and yet doubt the resurrection? Do your head like this. No. You might can question it and doubt it to some degree, but if you're going to be a Christian, you have to stand rock solid on the foundation, which is that Jesus Christ is not in the grave, He is risen. And so turn to 1 Corinthians 15, you're going to want to keep your finger there. The New Testament makes this abundantly clear. The resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. Because first and foremost, it is the very Gospel itself. It is the good news. You take away the resurrection and is the gospel good news? It's bad news. First Corinthians 15, 1-5 Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Now he's about to give you the gospel. That I preached to you which you received and which you Stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. and that what I said? The whole goal of this was, if you are a believer of this series, that you would stand firm and you would stand fast in what you believe, no matter what the world says. Unless you believed in vain, for I deliver to you as of first importance. Here it is, what I also receive. Here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared to Caiaphas then to the... Twelve, And so he says, here it is, the gospel. Christ died, He was buried, He was raised, boom, the gospel. There it is. Without the resurrection as the foundation, there is no good news. Think about it. Before I said, if you have no Christ, N-O, you have no hope. If there is no resurrection, N-O, then you have no hope. To K-N-O-W the resurrection is to K-N-O-W hope. Because Peter says in 1 Peter 1 3, we have been born again to what? A living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's the very gospel itself, and then turn to Romans 10. It's necessary for salvation. Let me ask you, can you be a Christian? Can you become a Christian without believing in the virgin birth? Yes. You actually can become a Christian without believing in the virgin birth. But once you are a Christian, can you then deny the virgin birth? I would say no. Because Jesus had to be sinless to go to the cross and pay for your sins. The only way He could be sinless because each of us is born with a sin nature is what? Through the virgin birth. But can you even become a Christian without believing in the resurrection? No. No. Well, how do you say that? Because look at Romans 10, 9 to 10. Look at what Paul says. If you what? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart what? You. God raised him from the dead, then what? You then you will be saved. And is there a question mark there? No. 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 For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Salvation minus the resurrection is damnation. That's what it is. Alright, third, without it, there are disastrous consequences. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Just keep your finger there. I have in my Bible written, minus the resurrection, our faith is senseless, useless, worthless, and hopeless. And that's exactly what Paul says. Look at what he says in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is vain, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, Today, why am I even up here wasting my time? The reason that I'm up here is to try and uh, build you up in the faith and to win those that are lost. And the hope of that is what? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Preaching without the resurrection is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Look at what He says. We are liars. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. I saw a quote from a man who said that if the disciples lied about the resurrection, we need to impeach them. There's so much talk about impeaching Trump and impeaching this person. I say we need to impeach all of Congress and just start over. Amen. But if they lie to us, we need to impeach them. And then look at what he says. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I have no hope to ever see Nanny Ruth Cook alive again if the resurrection is not true. I've told you many times, after I see Jesus and fall at His feet and kiss those nail-scarred feet and finally get myself up, I'm going to go run lickety-split and find Nanny Ruth Cook and hug her. I miss her. But if the resurrection is not true, I have no hope to ever see her. And neither do you. And then look, he says, if the resurrection isn't true in verse 19, we're the most pathetic people on the planet. And then four, it's seen in nearly every public witness of the early church. Turn to Acts chapter 2. You see someone preaching in the early church in the New Testament, and you know what the foundation of their message is? The resurrection. Acts 2. Starting verse 23. Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn him an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Why else is the resurrection the foundation? The linchpin of the Christian faith. One, it witnesses to the immense power of God Himself. As Jimmy talked about this morning, Jesus is victorious over death in the grave. How? Because of the resurrection. Number two, it validates who Jesus claimed to be. What did Jesus say? You want a sign? I'm going to give you one. Here's it The Son of Man is going to be in the earth three days and three nights, like Jonah was in the belly of the well. And it proves Jesus' sinless character and divine nature. In Psalm 1610, your Holy One will not see corruption. It validates Old Testament prophecies and New Testament writings and Jesus' own claims. It gives testimony to our own resurrection as we talked about. Think about this. It impacts our service to the Lord now. If Jesus is not risen, then why are you even serving the Lord if you're serving the Lord? Why go to Africa and tell people a falsehood if Jesus is not resurrected and risen? Amen? And then it guarantees a future family reunion. One of the scriptures I use the most to preach at funerals is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. We don't grieve, brothers and sisters, as those who have no hope. Because we grieve as those who have hope knowing that for a Christian, it is not goodbye, it is see you later. I cannot tell you how many times I have shared that truth with people in my office. That it's not so long. It's just see you later. So you think the resurrection is important? It's foundational? Christianity without it, like I said, is zilch. So let me ask you, how secure is it? How firm is the foundation? Is as Richard Dawkins would have us believe about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk? Think about it. What are most other religions based on? They're based on their teachings right and their teaching is usually what some type of work do something to earn your way into heaven what is christianity based on an event a historical and otherwise verifiable event the death of christ and the resurrection think about hinduism it has no attempt to verify itself there's millions of gods so why would it have to verify itself Buddhism, you don't worship any gods or God it doesn't even matter if Buddha was a real person think about Islam they use a subjective test to validate in the Quran it says is there any book that is so eloquently written as the Quran therefore it had to be written by Allah well I could say the same thing about Moby Dick or my third grade haiku that it was eloquent and nobody else could have wrote it other than God it's a subjective test to validate it the only religion whose central tenet of faith, the resurrection, is able to be tested is Christianity. It's tested by what's akin to history's scientific method as we're going to look at. And some critics would say, oh, you're saying, well, the scriptures, that circular argument and proof. You're saying the Bible is God's word, the Bible says Jesus is raised, so Jesus was raised because the Bible says so. Rice Brooks in Man, Myth, and the Messiah, he says the conclusion Jesus is raised flows from a historical event, not just a random assertion in a religious book as skeptics like to portray. I love what Dr. Gary Habermas said. He uses this. He would hold up his Bible and he would say, if this Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, Jesus is raised from the dead. If the Bible is not inerrant but still reliable, Jesus is raised from the dead. But if the Bible is neither reliable nor inerrant, Jesus is still raised from the dead because there's massive amounts of proof to show that the tomb is empty. It's not as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk as Richard Dawkins would like us to believe. There's a mountain of overwhelming evidence that we're going to look at. And so all they're left to do is just come up with crazy theories as to... Why the tomb is empty. So let's look at that. Jesus has risen, the fallacy. Psalm eleven three asks, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so what is it that critics are going to attack? The resurrection, because that's the foundation of our faith. So we're going to look at five common theories that are used to disprove the resurrection. The first one is the swoon theory. That's the idea that Jesus never really died on the cross. Did you know that's actually taught in the Quran that Jesus never died on the cross? Some Muslims contend that he fled to India, and you can there's a shrine in Kashmir that marks his supposed burial place. And it's hard to keep a good heresy down, as I said before, right? In the 19th century, they started to say that Jesus merely fainted from exhaustion on the cross, or he was given a drug that made him appear to die, and he was later revived by the cool, damp air of the tomb. So it wasn't a resurrection, it was just a resuscitation. The 20th century, I was telling Marty this morning, uh, 1965 British scholar Hugh Sconefield wrote a book, The Passover Plot, in which he says Jesus was so convinced that he was the Messiah, he came up with this plot to prove it, He and the disciples were in on it, and basically he had Joseph of Arimathea, who arranged to basically give him a drug. You remember he said, "I thirst," and he was given a drug, and the drug was basically to knock him out, comatose, so that then he could revive in the cool of the tomb and show himself to be Messiah. And the plot was run ground whenever the soldier then thrust the spear into Jesus' side, effective killing him. This is a scholar coming up with this nonsense. I mean, I see people shaking their head. You know why? Because you're smarter than a fifth grader. And you can be a scholar and you can come up with some of the most ignorant stuff imaginable. Very few people accept this today, this swoon theory. Norman Geisler said that the evidence is greater for Jesus' death than any other event in the ancient world. Timothy uh, Johnson called it pure poppycock. And so how is that? Because Jesus was undeniably, certifiably dead. Turn to Mark 15, 15. Y'all remember from the Wizard of Oz? You remember the little corner? I always think of that whenever I think of this. Jesus was undeniably, certifiably dead. Remember the little corner comes out there and he's kicking his shoes and he says, she is undeniably, certifiably dead. Jesus was undeniably, certifiably dead And as a doctor, I'm going to show you how you can look at the evidence in the Bible and say he was dead. First off, as you're turning to Mark 15, think back to, do you remember when Jesus was in the garden and Luke gives us one little bit of information, no one did, that when Jesus was praying, what did he do? He sweat drops of blood. Now does that sound like craziness? And some people say, oh, that's just craziness. Luke was a doctor. Do you know that that is a real medical condition? Hematodrosis. It means bloody sweat. And it's someone who is in extreme emotional agony and they're sweating, the little capillaries start to bust. And when that happens, you know what? When you're in, you ever, uh, you know the fight or, uh, fight or flight? You ever had somebody scare you and all of a sudden, boom, it's an adrenaline dump in your body? And so this massive stress he was under starts to set up his body for shock. And so look at Mark 15, 15. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now Mark doesn't tell us what scourging or flogging was because everyone then knew what it was. We might have to understand that they then tied you. Have you ever seen The Passion of the Christ? And they tie him to the pulse and they're beating him with the cat of nine tails. Literally it would be to the point that you could actually see organs open because there's so much flesh that would be destroyed. So Jesus has this massive chemical adrenaline dump in his body. His body is revved up. He then has this massive loss of blood. He would be in what we call hypovolemic shock. He doesn't have enough fluid in body or blood in His body. You ever been dehydrated? What happens? You get thirsty. Was there hallucinations? Lots of stuff that goes on, but the main thing is you start to get what? Thirsty. Is there any evidence that Jesus was in that condition? Yes, because when He was on the cross, what did He say as Jimmy talked about this morning? I thirst. So He was in critical condition before He ever even got to the cross. Alright, turn to um, Mark 15. Or stay at Mark 15, I'm sorry. So that's the torture before the cross and the agony of the cross. Crucifixion basically would lead to acid building up in your body because you couldn't breathe. That then would lead you towards congestive heart failure in which you get fluid all on your body. You get it around your heart. Remember whenever the soldier stuck the spear into Jesus' side, what did it say? That blood and water flowed out. Well, why water? Because he's probably in congestive heart failure because he's in shock. And then he probably actually died of a broken heart. Because think about it. If you're being crucified and you're slowly suffocating to death, when you finally breathe your last, what's it going to be like? And that's it. You probably won't make much of a sound. Look at Mark 15 37 And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. These Roman soldiers had seen plenty of people die by crucifixion. And they were used to seeing people die like that. Their last breath. Jesus goes, Into your hands I commit my spirit and it's finished! He screams out. And look at what the centurion says. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, truly this man was the Son of God. He had never seen anybody die like that. He had never seen anybody die in power. Why? Because Jesus said what? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. But there's also good medical evidence that whenever people start to have a rupture From their heart or a fatal arrhythmia, they get this intense motion that something bad's about to happen, and they cry out. And so Jesus probably literally died of a broken heart. That's the agony of the cross. And then third, the removal from the cross. You know what happened if a Roman soldier allowed somebody to get off of the cross alive? No. They get killed. And you remember they come to Jesus instead of breaking his legs, what did they do? He's already dead. They shoved the spear into his side to be sure. And then the disposal after the cross. You remember Pilate's surprise? He said, I can't believe that this man has already died. Why? Because he gave up his life of his own accord. And then they wrapped him in John 19 in 75 pounds of spices. Well, if he wasn't dead then, he had suffocated from that. Wouldn't you think so? So he's undeniably certifiably dead and then he's undeniably unworthy of worship. Let me ask you, if Jesus got down off that cross, half alive and revived in the cool of the tomb, would you then worship him? No. Then why did it go from Saturday to Sunday as a day of worship? Because he's undeniably worthy of worship because he defeated death. In his book, The Case uh, for Christ, Lee Strobel asked a gentleman that's an MD and PhD and consultant to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. He said, if people uh, say Jesus merely swooned on the cross, what do you tell them? He said, I tell them it's impossible. It's a fanciful theory without any possible basis in fact. Alright, quickly the wrong tomb theory. This came up in the early 1900's. Gentlemen gentleman said the women went to the wrong tomb. They got lost in the early dark and the gardener comes and tells them hey you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth he's not here but before he could say hey his tomb is over there they took off running afraid Luke uh, late got zero following with this and think about this if it was that early that they got lost and went to the wrong tomb what was the gardener doing there working? Mm-hmm. <laughs> not to mention that the authorities would have happily said oh you missed it here's the right tomb mm-hmm. alright the stolen body theory No scholars defended this in the past 200 years, but I want to put it here because I want you to think about a point you may have never really thought about before. The premise of the stolen body theory is this. The followers of Jesus desperately wanted to believe he was raised from the dead, so they stole the body. C.S. Lewis says it's based on an erroneous presupposition, what he calls chronologic snobbery. Because the dominant worldview of the time is this, that bodily resurrection was inconceivable. If you were a Greek, there was such a thing as Gnosticism, which is that the body was bad and the spirit was good, and so salvation was liberation from the body. Once you got saved, you would never actually want to go back into the body because the body is bad. So there is no resurrection because body is bad, spirit is good. And so the Jews, the resurrection, it was equally unthinkable because to them the resurrection occurred at the end of time. Remember when Jesus is talking to Martha after Lazarus has died? And she says, Lord, I know that at the end of time there will be the resurrection of the dead. And so a Jew, if you went and told them said, hey, Job you know, has been resurrected from the dead, they'd say, are you nuts? Does it look like it's the end of time? Is the wolf laying down with the lamb? And so, first century people, Jews and Greeks, and think about what was early Christians composed of, mostly Jews, but Jews and Greeks, both who said the resurrection is not only something that's impossible, that's something that's not even wanted, suddenly, massively, their worldview changes instantly overnight. How do you account for that? i tell you how you account for it. You saw Jesus risen from the dead. That's how you account for it. Alright, next is the hallucination theory. This is worse than any of them really but it's one of the most popular ones today so I'll just give it to you that basically they said that the disciples were so overcome with grief and disillusionment that they all just group hallucinated that Jesus was alive. Psychiatrists today would tell you that this is nothing but pure poppycock. Alright, the final one is the legend theory. Y'all know the kind of whispering game? You know, you you have 20 people in line and you tell them some sentence at the beginning, and by the time it gets down to the 20th person, what is it? It's all jacked up and completely different than what it was before. That's kind of what this is. That they told something about Christ and it just got magnified and magnified to the point by hundreds of years later that Jesus was resurrected. And they say this because that Jesus was resurrected around 30 or 33 A.D., The Gospels weren't written until the late first century, so 50 years, there's plenty of time for legend to occur. But what they don't take into account do you know who it was that wrote the earliest account to attest to the resurrection? Turn to Galatians chapter 1. It was Paul. He wrote Galatians in AD 48. It's not 50 years later, it's at the most 15 years later. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. There's simply no time for legend. Lee Strobel points out in his book, The Case for Christ, that William Lane Craig called the legend theory worthless. He then defended Christianity before a crowd of 8,000 people. It was him versus a national spokesman from the American Atheist uh, group, and those who entered avowed atheists, agnostics, or skeptics 82% walked out concluding that the case for Christianity was the most compelling 47 that entered as non-believers exited as Christians you know how many became atheists? None. Exactly. He said claiming the resurrection is a legend is no different than saying that the assassination of Caesar or the military exploits of Alexander the Great were fabrications. So, have the critics, the skeptics, destroy the foundation of Christianity? Far from that. Simply here is a small collection of books that I have, and my wife knows that I have quite the collection of books. But this is book after book in which a skeptic literally took the evidence and looked at it with an open eye and an open ear and an open heart, and you know what they came away with? This here is a gentleman that was a homicide detective and was an agnostic and when he looked at it, cold case Christianity, he became a Christian. This is a man that was a lawyer, Jesus on trial, and when he looked at it, he became a Christian. Y'all are familiar with Lee Strobel and the case for Christ, and when he looked at it, he became a Christian. This is a man, Frank Morrison from the early 1900's, a British man that was a lawyer, and when he looked at it, he became a Christian. When the skeptics really honestly look at it without bias, they are converted. Not only do they say that it's good evidence, but they say that it is true. The reason for that is because facts are pesky things, amen? And so that's what we're going to look at finally here is the facts. For you that are parents, are facts not pesky things for your children? Well, Dad, I came in, it was before curfew. Well, it's funny when I looked out the window at 11 o'clock, your car was not there. Facts are pesky things. Amen? Now, if somebody comes down and gets arrested and they try to feed Billy some crazy story, what's Billy going to do? He's going to go check some alibis and when the alibis don't match up, facts are what? Pesky things. When you come to see me and you say, oh, Dr. Cook, I've been taking that cholesterol pill Every night, just like you told me, and I've been eating nothing but tuna fish. And your cholesterol is 425 facts or pesky things. Amen? Amen. So let me give you seven facts quickly that are minimal historical. If you're an agnostic, an atheist, even these people accept these things quickly. One, Jesus was crucified. Even non-biblical sources and early first century historians say that that was true. Second, Jesus' tomb was empty. Have you ever considered this? The Gospels, the Acts, and the earliest epistles, there's no appeal to the testimony of the women. And they were the first to see the tomb empty, right? Does Paul say, now y'all know the tomb is empty, go and ask the women. Does anybody say that? Why don't they say that? Oh, because their testimony is not admitted in the court, right? Wrong. In Luke 24, 18, you remember when Jesus comes upon the man's disciples and, they, and He hears them talking? And He says, what are y'all talking about? And they're like, are you the only dude in all Jerusalem that doesn't know that Jesus is risen from the dead? Because within 24 hours of it happening, it was public property that Jesus' tomb was empty. That's why these guys here are converted. Who moved the stone? No one can overcome the empty tomb. You, no one has successfully put Jesus back into the tomb. You know why? Because he ain't there. That's right. You can go find Buddha, and you can go find Confucius and you can go find Muhammad. You cannot find the bones of Jesus Christ because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen. Third, Jesus' disciples believe he appeared to them. The resurrection is an amazing feat. It was a fatal torment, an empty tomb, appearances and transformed lives. Think about it. When Paul wrote this, what did he say in 1 Corinthians 15? He says, hey, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at once. Some of them are dead but some of them are still alive. You don't believe me? Go ask them. They'll tell you. I love what Chuck Colson said. He said this. Y'all know Chuck Colson of Watergate? He said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead, then proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. They were beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They wouldn't have endured that if it weren't true. In other words, he's saying transform lives. Listen to what he then says Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles kept one for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The fourth thing is that it was proclaimed early. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8 is an early creed that Paul got from Peter. Creeds take years to happen. Larry Hertz, a pioneer in the study of the early church, said this was out within days. already said that in, with Emmaus' disciples that they say, are you the only one that doesn't know that Jesus is risen? Within 24 hours, everyone knew that this happened and they were proclaiming it. Fifth, think about this. Saul of Tarsus. He went from a harsh opponent of Christians. He saw the way Christianity is a dangerous heresy to stamp, to stamp out. And if you know his life, he set out for Damascus and six days later something profound happened. Boom, saw, saw Jesus and he was blinded. Three days later, think about this, he recovered from his temporary blindness. He did not recover his skepticism or his hate. How did he then become a defender of the Christian faith? i tell you how, because he saw the risen Jesus. Number six, James the skeptic became James the disciple. Do you all know how James died? He was stoned to death. Why? Because of his faith in Christ. If you know anything about him, he was the head of the church at Jerusalem. He gave the dissenting vote in the Council of Jerusalem in AD 50. He was one of the leaders And if you know anything about the early life, John 7, 5, his brothers didn't even believe in him. In Mark 3, there's a time in which Jesus is ministering and his family comes up to pull him out of the crowd because they say he's crazy. Says he's out of his mind. How did James go from thinking his brother is crazy and out of his mind to willing to die for him? I tell you how, because he saw the risen Jesus. And then number seven is the church was established and grew. The fact that you and I are sitting in pews this morning is a truth to the resurrection. The article Evan sent me, N.T. Wright, the resurrection of the Son of God, he said it's difficult to come up with any historical, plausible, alternative explanation for the birth of the Christian movement other than Jesus is risen. So facts are pesky things. Let me give you then quickly these... Seven Signs of Easter. I'm just going to give them to you quickly. You can write them down. I'm going to focus on mainly one. Here they are. The soldiers. They guarded the tomb at their own risk. And then they're gone. The seal. The tomb was sealed to prevent any tampering. The stone. Who moved the thing? It's estimated that it was two tons. And then the scars. The scars convinced Thomas. And then the sepulchre think about the tomb. If Jesus' tomb, if he had really still been in the tomb, don't you think that they would have turned it into a site of worship? There's no evidence for that. And then the shroud and the sightings, look at John 19 quickly. Have you ever thought about that the tomb wasn't empty? John 19, after these things, Joseph Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of, or I'm sorry, John 20. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Do you remember when Lazarus was resurrected? How did Lazarus come out? With all of those shrouds around him. And they had to pull them off of him. They walk in there and they look at the tomb. And they see this shell with 75 pounds of spices and the head cloth just neatly laid over to the side. They knew immediately that Jesus was risen. And then finally, number seven is the sightings. In Acts 1.3, Luke says that Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. Lee Strobel said that if you took all the people that Jesus appeared to and you put them on a witness stand, you'd have a 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony. It'd take you from breakfast on Monday to dinner on Friday. How could anybody walk away unconvinced after that? Billy, you ever seen somebody have five days worth of testimony to something and then the jury say, well, that's just not true? So in closing, y'all remember our Stations of the Cross? Marty said this is the last year that we don't do that, that he really missed that. We'd usually do that on Good Friday. Every year thousands of people climb a mountain in the Italian Alps and they pass stations of the cross and they come to stand at a crucifix an outdoor cross and once a tourist noticed a little trail that led beyond the cross and he goes back through the thicket and he comes upon another shrine and it's one devoted to the empty tomb it was neglected there's brush all grown up around it everybody had gone as far as the cross but there they stopped. Far too many people in our world (coughs) brothers and sisters had looked at the cross But then they've never really found the message of Easter, which is that of the empty tomb. Remember me talking about this guy, Dr. Frank Morrison, who was a lawyer? He held the opinion that the resurrection was nothing but a fairy tale. And it spoiled the story of Jesus. He said he would sit in church as a young man, and when they would do the Apostles' Creed, he would clench his teeth, and he wouldn't even say, on the third day, he had risen. And so he felt he owed it to himself and the others to write a book that would present the truth about Jesus. Beyond the cross to the empty tomb. Once he had studied it, the book that he had intended to write, he never wrote. Instead, he wrote this book, Who Moved the Stone? And you know what the first chapter of this book is entitled? The book that refused to be written. When he went past the cross to the empty tomb, he saw the evidence for The fact that Jesus is risen and became a Christian. And so, have you moved past the cross to the empty tomb? What book is written on the pages of your heart? I want you to leave here one-minded. Again, if you don't know Jesus, that you'd be convinced of the reality of the resurrection. Give your life to Christ. If you're saved, that you would stand firm in the reality of the resurrection and guard your heart in Christ. Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen indeed. And God's people said pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Again, thank you for this time to gather and worship you. Father, thank you for the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we can come to this time of invitation. Father, I pray that you would just pour your Holy Spirit out upon this place today. And if there's any that don't know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day they would come to know you as such. Father, we thank you as well for this time to partake of the Lord's Supper and ask that you would just bless that. Father, I pray that everyone has prepared their hearts to take it in a manner that is worthy of you. For it's in Jesus' precious and wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, if I had sat where you sat (coughs) Easter of 2001 and heard this sermon series, I'd have laughed you out of town. God exists. Which God? The Bible is true. You want me, a doctor, to believe that in an age of scientific enlightenment? Jesus is the only way. Man, you're narrow-minded and bigot. Jesus is risen. That's pure poppycock. Prove it. I stand before you this morning a changed man. God does exist. And the God of the Bible is the only one. And the Bible is true. There's overwhelming evidence to prove it so. Jesus is the only way. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the God man, Christ Jesus. Until you know him, you have a massive problem in your life. It's called sin, and it separates you from God. And if you don't do something about that sin problem, you don't cure it before you take your final breath, it's going to keep you separated from God for all eternity. And Jesus is risen. Anything to the contrary is pure poppycock. What's the difference? I didn't meet Jesus on the road to Damascus like Paul, but I met him in my bedroom when I read the Gospel of John. Like Dr. Spurgeon said, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I risked my whole eternity on the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, we think Easter's about Easter eggs, and I'm going to tell you, you better have all your eggs in one basket. And his name is Jesus Christ. Because only he lived the life that you could not live. And only he paid the debt that you were unwilling to pay so you could enjoy an eternity with God you don't even deserve. That's right. And so you do you know him today? If you were to take your final breath walking out of here, will you spend eternity with him? All you have to do is come receive him by faith this morning. So as we stand and sing, listen to the Lord as he calls you. Stand page 318. <clears throat> Have you failed in your plan of your storm-tossed life? Place your hands in the nail-scarred hand. Are you weary and worn in your toil and strife? Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Place your hand in the nail-scar hands. He will keep to him he's your dearest friend. Place your hand in the nail-scar